0: Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've been blogging about the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and waiting for them to win the World Series for my whole life. Thanks for listening today. Let's talk some Orioles. It is June the 7th, 2023. The Orioles are 37-23 and through their first 60 games after losing last night in extra innings to the Brewers. They've now lost one and a half games to the Tampa Bay Rays over the last two days as the Rays won on Monday while the Orioles were off, and they also won on Tuesday, which now leaves the Orioles five and a half games back in the American League East. The Orioles do still have the third best record, In Major League Baseball, and they remain on a 100 win pace over a full 162 game season. As I've said every time I have listed their current win pace on this show, I'm still going to take the under on that. Uh, The Orioles, they're going to have to lose a bunch more before I'm going to say, you know what, this is about where I can see them end. But, you know, We can all be excited. They are 37-23 and at this point. There were only, I think, three teams that had a better record than that over the recent 60-game full-season MLB season played in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic side effects. Uh, So, you know, Tuesday's game against the Brewers, it was one of those stupid ones where it seemed like a 100 things just went against the Orioles, some of which were actively their fault. Others were just kind of bad luck, and I'm just going to rattle through some of them in my standard purge all of the bad stuff and just vent about it, because let's get let's get down to it first. Uh, Anthony Santander is 0 for June. He took an 0 for 4 in Tuesday's game. He did come a couple of feet away from hitting a home run to the opposite field, but a couple of feet is not a home run, so it ended up uh, not going over the fence. Ramon Urias had a golden sombrero, 0 for 4, with four strikeouts in a uh, un, un, just an unfortunate game. The, the battle of the Ariases, as although I erroneously said on this podcast that his brother Luis Arias, the Brewer, would be on the injured list, he actually got activated for Tuesday's game. Now Luis Arias was also hitless; however, he did get on base with a hit by pitch and a walk. That included a 10th inning walk where uh, he he wasn't a meaningful run because the winning run was already the zombie runner or the Manfred man, whichever you prefer on second base. But, you know, the situation would have been a whole lot better if Austin Voth pitching the 10th inning had been able to get Luis Urias out. There were two great defensive plays, one of which was made by Luis Arias when Aaron Hicks was the batter. Hicks, although he did deliver the game-tying home run early in the game with a two-run home run, he was robbed of what could have been a two-run double by uh, Brewer's center fielder, I haven't even bothered to look up his first name, Weimer, and then got robbed on another line drive uh, that didn't really leave the infield by Arias. Starting pitcher Kyle Gibson really labored through the first inning, which ultimately contributed to his only completing five innings, in which he allowed only the two runs that he gave up in the first inning. So really, it could have been worse. Gibson did a fine job battling back. But, you know, Gibson is here to eat innings. And if Gibson's only pitching five innings, that is really not an ideal situation. It did kind of set in motion a chain reaction that had Yannir Cano ultimately entering the game in the seventh inning, which has gone well for the Orioles a number of games, a great number of games, really, so far this season to just bring in Cano in the seventh or the eighth or whatever. However, we are now arriving at a point where it seems like the league is now starting to catch up to Cano a bit now that there is something like um, really almost two months worth of Cano outings to dissect the pitch characteristics of his pitches and i think that's contributed to his split for the last 14 days before last night he had allowed a 924 ops to batters and you you really can just kind of see that with the eye test as batters are now starting to lay off some of the close pitches that were sinking out of the zone or maybe just out of the uh out of the strike zone on the outside corner and they're now able to elevate the pitches they are swinging at better because whereas Cano was before getting almost entirely ground balls they're now getting to be a lot of line drive singles and doubles and that included the game tying hit given up in the uh, eighth inning by Cano yesterday He's also giving up more walks, which is going along with batters, seeming to get a better sense of what is and isn't going to be in the strike zone for Cano. Uh, He's allowed four walks in the last seven games he's pitched, although one of those was an intentional walk issued yesterday. So still, for a reliever, you don't really want three walks in seven uh, innings or seven games. And that included an eighth-inning leadoff walk yesterday to 136-hitter Blake Perkins. You don't want to walk the 136 hitter. What the heck, right? And Perkins immediately stole second base, which was another problem as there were four Brewer steals in the game. Adley Rutschman, he was not making good throws on Tuesday night. Every throw he made tailed off to third base, and there was really no chance to tag out a runner. So that let Perkins get into scoring position where he was able to score on one of those line drive singles that got into the outfield by 206 hitter Bryce Terang. So again, that's a frustrating guy to have Cano give up the game-tying hit to, right? And he's now got an ERA that's over one. It's probably going to keep climbing. I guess the question will be where it ultimately stabilizes. And the question, you know, it's just going to be a rocky road until then, a little bit here and there. And, uh, you know, the under one ERA was never going to last, as fun as it was. And so... We'll just see where it shakes out. And so after Cano came out, Felix Bautista did very well in the ninth inning, got through it on 11 pitches. The Orioles did not choose to bring him out for the 10th inning. You could maybe be upset about that, but I think it was a valid decision because the Orioles, of course, did not score their Manfred man in the top of the 10th inning, Jorge Mateo in the 10th was not able to get down a sacrifice bunt. That's really the only time I am happy to see a possible sack bunt. If you're the road team um, in extra innings in the tie game, if it's a bad hitter uh, in the number nine spot who maybe makes the bunt, and in particular, the Orioles in the leadoff spot yesterday had Adam Frazier, who's a contact hitter who's likely to be able to bring the batter in from third if... Uh, he is able to get a batter on third before he comes up. Mateo couldn't get the bunt down, so the guy wasn't on third for Fraser. As it turned out, Fraser did not hit the kind of batted ball that would have scored the zombie runner, but, you know, that's the way it goes. And in the 10th inning, Austin Voth allowed the walk-off hit to the 209 hitter Weimer, who earlier in the game had that amazing play against Aaron Hicks. So... Austin Voth, I continue to be not very happy with him. Maybe it wasn't entirely his fault. Honestly, he shouldn't have been put in the position where he had to come in into the bottom of the 10th inning with a a tie game, but that's the way it worked out. So, you know, the Orioles ended up losing the game. Uh, Before Tuesday's game, the legendary Jim Palmer on Masson said something that really stuck with me about the Orioles. It kind of mirrors what I think about them too. He said about them, "quote Every time I think they're not good, they prove otherwise. This is a club that is playing better than most people think." End quote. And you know, I I absolutely agree with Jim Palmer. That happens quite frequently. He is a smart guy, and. Of course, you know, when the Orioles lose, it seems like their problems are really magnified. And there were a number there are a number of them ongoing right now, a number of which played out in the course of Tuesday's loss. I think, um, you know, there's no starting pitcher on the team with a real track record of major league success. Even the veteran Kyle Gibson has never had two good MLB seasons in a row. Currently, there are big slumps for Jorge Mateo, Ryan Mountcastle, Anthony Santander, and Ramon Urias. Santander, I think, is particularly a bit of a concern for me because he's looking a bit like a platoon player, the weak side of a platoon player so far this season, with a particular split before Tuesday's results. Santander has a 6.67 OPS this season against right-handed starting pitchers, so you know, that's not a guy who you want to have in the lineup every day if that's how he's hitting, right? Uh, so, I mean, the Orioles aren't going to panic and shouldn't panic and overreact to that. But, you know, we've got two months of Santander making at-bats against right-handed starting pitchers now. And that's, you know, that's not a good number. And if that continues, you know, through the end of June, I hope the Orioles at that point would maybe start to think, okay, maybe they need to change their usage pattern for Anthony Santander. More on that in a second. Of course, Janier Cano is now having some problems as well, and all of that just adds up to particularly the Cano thing. It, it adds up to bad news for a team that can't win a comfortable game. The Orioles just refused to win a game by more than five runs this season. They haven't done it yet. Even their blowouts are the bare minimum blowout. And so, you know, if, if one of your two most reliable relievers is hitting the expected rough patch, you know, that makes it tough. Um, maybe in like early May, this is a game the Orioles would have won because Cano was doing his, just waltzing through lineups period, but that's not where they are right now. So, you know, much like everything else, we're going to see where it shakes out for the Orioles. They are, I think it's, I think, you know, they're, they're on pace for 100 wins. I'm still thinking they're not going to win a hundred or more games. The, uh, the Pythagorean expected win loss record, they're four wins better than their expected 33 and 27. I think, with some of these problems, especially the Canoe problem, the Orioles are going to close that gap with some losses, unfortunately. And, you know, once they get maybe like two wins of good luck ahead, we're going to find out where that stabilizes from there. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's a good place. Uh, as far as Santander, you know, There is a left-handed hitting outfielder in Norfolk, Colton Kowser, who would maybe be a great guy to come up and get at-bats against right-handed pitchers that Santander should maybe no longer get. Um, People also would like to see Jordan Westbrook come up, although he's a right-handed batter, not an outfielder, so not exactly the same kind of roster spot. Why aren't those guys here yet? I don't know. There's been some guessing over the past couple of days that maybe the Orioles are waiting to be sure that the Super 2 deadline passes. And that's what the Super 2 thing is, one of the quirks in Major League Baseball's kind of service time rules. It's where players who end up getting the seventh year of service time are able to get four years of arbitration instead of the usual three, which for those players, that means they start getting arbitration salaries sooner, and their fourth year of arbitration tends to pay them pretty well. And so... Last year, the cutoff for the Super 2, and it, it, it migrates every year because it's based on a, when a certain percentage of players have been up in the league that are in the two- or three-year service time class. And so last year, 59 days into the season was when they hit the Super 2 deadline, which is, uh, it meant that players got another 128 days of service time if they called up and were stayed up. However, 2 years ago, it was only 7 it was actually 71 days into the season where the Super 2 deadline crossed, at which allowed players who came up on that day to get 116 days of service time. According to MLB trade rumors, the longest since the 2009 season has been 72 days into the season for the Super 2 deadline. So that allowed players who came up on that day to get 115 days of service, and in that year they qualified for Super 2. Now, guess what? Yesterday was 68 days since the start of the season. So that makes today 69 days since the start of the season. And Friday, when the Orioles will start a homestand, marks 71 days. So there is a question, I guess. Will the Orioles, let say, Kowser or Westbrook debut at home? Well, you could get excited for that with one problem. Michael Elias mostly does not have the prospects debut at home. Adley Rutschman is really the only exception. None of Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez, or D.L. Hall debuted at home. Um, You know, even Joey Ortiz didn't debut at home. So I I don't think it's going to happen. And the other reason I don't think it's going to happen is because the Super 2 deadline, like I said, it varies. No one is going to know until season's end when MLB crunches the numbers and calculates it. So if a team... Is trying to wait on the Super Two deadline, which maybe the Orioles are, maybe they aren't. Then they're probably going to want to wait another week or maybe even two weeks just to be extra sure. And you know, it's um, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of being sort of penny wise and pound foolish. I think if you're having players who could help the team right now, not be down there, but. You know, that's how teams operate these days. The Orioles are not alone in this. Nobody wants to have guys be Super Two if they can avoid it because they just, uh, you know, the balance sheet or whatever says you don't want to pay that seventh year salary as a fourth year of arbitration. And so, you know, because of whatever concerns about the 2029 Orioles payroll, we don't maybe, we maybe don't have Kouser or Westberg. Now, as a note, Kauser legitimately, I think, needs probably another week or two in Norfolk to make sure he's shaken off all of the rust from his injury. Jordan Westberg, not quite the same consideration. So, okay, there you go. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... And I'm going to quickly go through an email from listener Steve, who, uh, when I was talking about Jordan Westberg in the last episode, he wrote and asked me, whose playing time would or should Westberg take? Would I call him up in a part-time role? Would I rather see Westberg or Ortiz return? So for me, it's a no on the part-time role. I, I think that a prospect like Westberg, if he's going to come up, he needs to play most every day. and you know, despite everything I just said before I took the little break, it's tough right now because the infield slumpers are Jorge Mateo, Ramona Rias, and Gunnar Henderson also kind of, and Westberg is a second baseman. He's not a third baseman or a shortstop, and the guys I named are the ones who are playing third base and shortstop. So, you know, it's tougher to squeeze him in. Adam Fraser is doing okay enough. So, you'd have Westberg, what? Maybe taking at bats from Westberg against left handed starters, maybe doing some DH, maybe some occasional right field. You know, if the Orioles can stick Ryan O'Hernan left field or right field sometimes, why not Jordan Westberg, right? Um, you know, still, I want to see him up. I think when the infield offense sucks as much as it did, and it, it does. And also, Ryan Mountcastle, you know, is stinking as well. So, really, every infielder is having some kind of problem or another with how they're hitting, except for maybe Fraser, who's cromulent relative to expectations. So, you know, what are they going to do? I don't know. But I, I'm um, I'm not in the gripe constantly that Westberg is not up club, but I'm ready to see him, and hopefully we will soon. So if you'd like to have an email uh, read on a future episode, any thoughts about the Orioles, or just a question for me, you can email camdencastpod at gmail.com. To everyone who's written in so far, Steve and everyone else, thank you. So I'm just going to run briefly through the prospect of the episode before wrapping it up. And we're now down to number 25 on the composite top Orioles prospect list that I posted to CamdenChat.com before the season. Number 25 is right-handed pitcher Noah Denoyer. He was an undrafted free agent by the Orioles in 2019 from San Joaquin Delta College. No, I had never heard of it either. Denoyer, he made himself interesting enough as a swingman and long reliever that the Orioles added him to the 40-man roster last November when they had to do so to protect him from the most recent Rule 5 draft. In the 2022 season with A Bowie, he pitched 14 games, struck out 69 batters with only 11 walks across 59 and a third innings. So that's pretty darn good. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that was his age 24 season, which is old for the double-A level. That's, it's not, um, not the exciting prospect age for AA. You know, you really probably don't want to be older than like 22 or maybe 23 in double-A. So the Orioles sent Denoyer to the Arizona Fall League last year, and there he started having some command problems appear. He issued 11 walks in the 20 innings he pitched out in Arizona last fall. And unfortunately, those command problems have continued into 2023. He has issued 20 walks in 29 and a third innings. So that's led him to a 5.22 ERA for the Norfolk Tides. And it's just going to be tough to have success with that kind of walk rate. So there are uh, up to this point, there are five pitchers on the Orioles 40-man roster who have not pitched for the Orioles this season. And those five guys are Seth Johnson, who's out with Tommy John Rehab. Drew Rahm, who did appear for two games on the Orioles but did not pitch, Nick Vespi, Spencer Watkins, and DeNoyer. Now, of those four healthy guys, only Nick Vespi is getting good results so far this year. So, you know, I I think that's why we haven't seen the other guys. I feel if DeNoyer was pitching better, having a less of a walk rate in particular, we probably would have seen him by now, but he hasn't. And so... I am kind of have DeNoyer on watch of being is he going to end up as another pitcher who gets added to the 40-man to protect him from the Rule 5 just in case, who didn't end up staying on the 40-man for terribly long. That happened just a couple of years ago with pitcher Kevin Smith, who the Orioles acquired from the Mets in the Miguel Castro trade in 2020. And he was very similar to DeNoyer in that he started having command problems after being added to the 40-man roster. And as of this point, he has not pitched in Major League Baseball. So, you know, we'll see what happens with DeNoyer. He does uh, have a little bit, you know, going for him in the prospect writing world. He was the number 22 guy on the Fangraphs-Orioles prospect list going into this year. They said about him, quote, DeNoyer's fastball has enjoyed a two-mile-an-hour bump since 2021. Uh, They noted, quote, DeNoyer often pitches backwards from breaking balls to get ahead, And Tenorier has gone from undrafted sleeper to high probability big league contributor in a span of three years as an innings-eating mid-game option, end quote. So they said high probability big league contributor when they wrote about the Orioles earlier this year, but, you know, we're not seeing that yet with the 2023 results. And, you know, one of the unfun realities of prospects is you can get excited about one of these unheralded guys who becomes vaguely interesting and then they just don't make it. It's, uh, you know, it's a downer. It's, it's not fun to be the person who's always pointing that out. So I try to not really dwell on that, but at this moment, that's the trend Denoyer unfortunately is on. I hope he can turn it around. That's all I have for this episode today. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a rating or review and think about telling an Orioles fan in your life about the show. New episodes will be out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, so I will be back with you on Friday, hopefully with some better Orioles stuff to talk about than the Tuesday game that was just played right before I started recording this podcast. Between now and then, you could leave a comment for me on CamdenChat.com or tweet at me at CamdenChat on Twitter. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. Until next time, Go O's.